Thank you, Dan and Jody. Appreciate your singing. Thank you to our staff for leading us in a concert of prayer tonight as we begin this new year together. It is 2020, if you did not know that, and we began a brand new adventure together with each other as a church family, and we're pray, praying that God is going to lead us together. We're looking at Acts chapter 9 tonight, so if you'll turn there, we'll uh, make our way through that as, as much as we can tonight. The lights are so bright that I cannot see the clock back there, so I'm trusting you'll just stand up and leave when it's time to, uh, to be finished. <laughs> Acts chapter 9, we'll look at these verses together, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is not the first time we see Saul in the book of Acts. In fact, I remember just uh, some weeks ago our pastor was preaching. We got to the end of chapter 7 in Acts. And it, it talks about the stoning of Stephen. You might remember, you would look back, you're welcome to. It, it says they, they had driven him out of the city. They began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Do you remember that? They laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That was our first picture of Saul. This is our second picture of Saul. We see him breathing murderous threats, and he's requested letters from the high priest so that he might go and arrest these Damascus believers and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Many of them have probably come from Jerusalem. They made that 135-mile journey up to Damascus at some point uh, to flee from persecution. The high priest here was probably still Caiaphas, but not too many folks would have access to the high priest. So that tells you something about Saul being able to have access to the high priest. You know that Saul is going to become one of the most widely known and widely read of all the apostles. He'll make three missionary journeys and he'll establish churches in areas we know now as Turkey and Syria and uh, Greece and Italy. He'll, re he'll write inspired letters of scripture and preach Christ to the high government officials. He will suffer perhaps more than any other person in the New Testament suffers for Christ. But for now... He is public enemy number one for believers. He is public enemy number one. He wanted to eradicate Christianity, this group called the way. He wanted to, to get rid of them once and for all. Now, what was the big deal about Damascus? Why did Saul want to go to Damascus? Well, Damascus was at that point the hub of a commercial network with far-flung lines of travel, these trade routes by caravan into Syria, into Mesopotamia, into Persia, and Arabia. And Saul was afraid that if the, if the way this group of believers flourished in Damascus, they would flourish in all of the world that he knew. So he was making that trek to stamp out as best he could Damascus, the Jews in Damascus, the believers in Damascus. That way, that those people must be stopped. 
It's ironic as we know now that Paul is the one who will eventually carry the message of Christ to all those foreign places. And here we see him trying to stamp out the believers. Verse 3, it says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is not the first time you know that God said, let there be light. The very opening passage of our words of Scripture say, let there be light, and there was light, and God's light proved that He was creator to all who could see, and Saul saw this light again tonight. We see that. Uh, light is a symbol of the presence of God. Light is the, the presence of God in, in the darkness, in those dark places. You know what it's like to be without light. You ever been in a dark place? You know what it's like? You ever been in Carlsbad Caverns or one of those places where they can turn the lights out and it is completely dark? You might feel that way at night sometime when you're stumbling around, you've gotten up out of bed and you're trying to find your way and you have your hands out in front of you and you're, you're making sure that you don't hit the door, which happens to be right here as you're, as you're reaching. And uh, you might be, maybe you're getting medicine and you pick up your, your medicine and you drop a pill. If you're like me, I have to turn on the light to see that pill and the race is to get to it before the dog does because I don't want the dog's heart to be so good that he outlives me. So uh, we got to find that, find that pill. Anyway, it's, it's dark and so we turn on the light. Luke here has told us about a lost, uh, a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son, and now in Acts he's telling us about a lost preacher that sees the light. Now the last thing Saul intended to do was to become a believer. The very last thing on his mind was turning to Christ, but he saw the light. It was midday, and so this light was going to be very, very bright, very intense. It might be like looking at an eclipse and that sun burning into your eye lens, that image. That's not a bad image for believers, is it? When we look at Christ and see God's light, that it burns that image into our, into our eyes. Here it says that a voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And look at God's response there in verse 5. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know why he didn't say, I am God whom you're persecuting? Because Saul believed in God. In fact, Saul thought he was on a mission for God, didn't he? He was a believer in the God of the Old Testament. He was living out his life to stamp out these crazy new believers who were called the way. So Saul believed in God, but when he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, it is Jesus. Saul had that moment of recognition. Saul had that moment that flashed before his eyes of saying, I missed it all of this time. I've been wrong. 
I've been persecuting Jesus and his church. And now I know that Jesus is alive. He's been resurrected from the dead. And Saul became speechless. He was sightless. It says here he neither ate nor drank, almost like a medical condition you would think of, of somebody who had a stroke or somebody who was incapacitated. They couldn't do anything. We see Saul here like that. And we began to put this picture together that we know something different about Saul. It was not only that he, he couldn't see for a while, or he was speechless, but he was broken, spiritually bankrupt. He had put all of his chips in the Jewish religion. And when he went to cash in those chips, he found that they were worthless. He had persecuted the Lord and his church. And Paul, though he was blind, could see the error of his life more clearly than ever before. We see here in this passage that, that this was both a conversion and a calling all in one. God just called and light came down and Saul said, who are you Lord, you realize in this passage it's so neat to think about the conversion of Saul. There are several things I, I love about this. First, you see that God takes the initiative in drawing people to him. God did the same thing with you and with me. He drew us to him. Here he takes the initiative and draws Saul to him. It's that divine initiative that God has. We see here that salvation is a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Saul couldn't count on anybody else for his religion. He had to have a personal encounter with Christ. And in that, that thing we call conversion, that process we call conversion, there's some point we stop and we call Jesus Lord. We surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And that happened right here to Saul. We see in this passage that the body of Christ becomes very important to conversion. For even though it's very personal, the body of Christ, his church, his people come alongside of us and help us grow and nurture and believe. And so, so that was a part of Saul's conversion. And we also see that Saul was saved to serve. So this was a turning point in the book of Acts. You know, he says, we're going to take the message to Jerusalem, to Judea, and all the parts of the earth. And this is the beginning of Saul, Paul's mission to take that gospel into all of the earth. Look at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, here am I, Lord. It's kind of neat to echo that when Saul says, who are you, Lord? Now Ananias, Ananias says, uh, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. You know, I love this part of the story because we're reminded that God is always at work behind the scenes of our lives, orchestrating those divine appointments. You realize that? God is always at work in the background of our lives, organizing those divine appointments. When you're, when you're preparing for a job and you work hard at preparing for that job, don't you know that God's on the other side of that equation, preparing those that you're going to work with and those that you're going to be ministering to and serving in that job? And God's not just working on your end, He's working on their end too. When you're preparing to get married, God is not just preparing your heart, He's also preparing the heart of your spouse. And God's at work on both ends of, of things behind the scenes. You remember the centurion's servant in uh, Luke chapter 7 when the centurion is talking and says, Jesus, my servant is ill. He needs to be healed. And at that very moment, the scripture tells us his, his servant was healed. At the exact same time, God was at work behind the scenes orchestrating things at the very same time. One of the first jobs I had out of seminary was in my, in my new church was telling a Sunday school teacher that he needed to retire. This Sunday school teacher was about three years older than me. He was a karate expert. There were just all kinds of things that were intimidating about this, this situation that I faced. And um, he, he, would, he would drive to, to church with his wife and they would, most Sundays would have a fight on the way to church and they would get to Sunday school and be mad at each other and you could see it and he hadn't prepared his lesson. It was just a, it was a really tough situation. So one day I got up the courage to call him. I didn't know any better. Just called him and said, hey, would you, would you visit with me about Sunday school? And he said to me right there on the phone, he said, you know what? I'm kind of thinking that I'm not doing real well in Sunday school right now. And it's probably time for me to step away. Would you just go ahead and find somebody else to take my place? <laughs> I learned then that God was at work behind the scenes doing things that I could never do. You ever felt like that? God is at work. That's what happened here. The same time that Saul was having this vision, God told Saul, go to this house called Straight. You'll find a man named Ananias. At the same time, God was telling Ananias, there's going to be a man named Saul who's going to come to your house. You, you, you see how God works behind the scenes like that? Now, Ananias was fearful, and rightfully so. You, you see what he says there? Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. It was kind of like Moses saying, Lord, I, they, they don't know who I am and they don't know who you are and what if they won't believe me and I can't talk so good? It was probably like Elijah when God told, him to, to, God told Elijah to go to him in 1 Kings 17 and tell him it's not going to rain for a while and uh, Ahab was one of those. In fact, it says Ahab provoked God more than any other king. Imagine Elijah trying to say, God, I'm not sure you're, you really want to do this. It's almost like we're saying, and Ananias would say, Lord, are you sure? Now, Lord, I'm not doubting you. I'm doubting what I heard because I don't think I heard it just right. And God says, go. Look in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. You catch that? Brother Saul. He wasn't Saul the persecutor any longer. He was Brother Saul. Now, we're not sure when 
Saul received the Spirit. It says there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he, he got baptized, and then he took food. So we know he was going to be a good Baptist at some point when he ate right there after he was baptized and was, uh, was strengthened. But, but we, we go on, it says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Verse 20, Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief of priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Notice here that Saul is with the very ones who he went to persecute. He was going to round them up and take them back to Jerusalem for trial. And now he was with them. Don't you love when God turns things upside down like that? Have you ever had those up, down, upside down moments in your life when you catch yourself saying, now this is exactly what I did not want to happen. You ever said that? You've said that before? James reminds us, don't say that tomorrow you're going to do this or that because God may have other plans. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is when the ladies go to anoint the body of Jesus. On that third day, they had to wait until after Sabbath when it was over. They gathered their, their uh, anointing materials. They were going to go refresh the body, and the body wasn't there. And the job that they had, the plans that they made were changed immediately. For what were they going to do now? They were to go and tell. That's what happened in this passage. Go and tell. I, I can't help, I don't know what it is about me when I read this passage, I can't help thinking about Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus, there, what's the contrast there? Here we see Saul who was walking down the road to Damascus to defeat the Jews. He was doing everything in his power to defeat the way these people called the way, the Jewish believers who had been converted. And in Zacchaeus, we see this story of a wee little man who, who walks up a, a road and climbs up in a tree because what? He wanted to see Jesus. Saul had no intention of looking at Jesus. And Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus. Both of them had lives that were despised by those around him, those believers. In fact, Zacchaeus was part of that tax collection system, and he was a wealthy person. In fact, Luke tells us he was a chief tax collector, which means he had a lot of money, and he was a part of that system that, that uh, the Romans used to collect money from the Jews, and well, if, if he got wealthy along the way by overcharging and overtaxing, well, that was just part of the system, and it was okay too. Zacchaeus was hated, just like, just like Saul. Zacchaeus was the one who let money rule his, his life, in, in fact, uh, he would be right along with some of our, our guys today. We think of J. Paul Getty, who said, My formula for success is rise early, work hard, and strike oil. That's, that's how you get rich. Malcolm Forbes said, I made my money the old-fashioned way. I was very nice to a wealthy relative right before he died. Well, Zacchaeus said, Money is the most important thing in my life, and I'm going to tax you, and I'm going to tax you, and I'm going to tax you until I become wealthy and you become poor. He lived in Jericho, and when he heard that Jesus was coming by, he climbed up that tree, and Jesus looked right at him, and Zacchaeus saw. And somewhere along the way, on that way back home, Zacchaeus had a change of heart. Money was no longer his master. Money was no longer the most important thing in his life. He gave his life completely 
to Christ. In this picture, we see that Saul gave his life completely to Christ. Money was no longer his master. The, the, the religious fervor of stamping out the way was no longer his master. There was nothing else to Saul more important than Christ. Saul said those words, who are you, Lord? At that moment, Saul knew that Jesus was Lord. So the big question for Ananias and these early believers was whether or not Saul was really a follower of Christ. What did it mean to be a follower of Christ? And could he really have been a follower of Christ? Could it really have happened? There was a young man named John who received a parrot as a gift. Now this parrot had a really bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. You may have heard of this parrot before. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. John tried as he could to change this bird's attitude by consistently saying polite words, by playing soft music, and anything else he could do to kind of clean up this bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up and he yelled at the bird, and the bird yelled back at him, and John shook the parrot and got even angrier, and the parrot got even angrier and even ruder, and John, in desperation, opened the freezer, and he shoved that parrot in the freezer and closed the freezer door. After about five minutes, John thought, well, I, I don't want to kill the bird, so, and it had gotten totally quiet. John opened the freezer door and pulled that bird out. And after just a moment, the parrot kind of came to, and he said uh, to John, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. But could I ask you one more question? And Don, John said, sure. And the parrot said, what did the turkey say? <laughs> There's a story of... Sandra Bullock portrays Leanne Tui in The Blind Side. You remember that, that story of her and her husband who took in this, this football player named Michael Orr. He not only dodged the hopelessness and dysfunction of the inner city that was a part of his life, but uh, he became the first round NFL draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens. That was 11 years ago, 20, uh, 2009. You remember that story, The Blind Side? And in fact, um, Leanne Tui was here in Amarillo a few years ago, and she spoke at the Globe News Center about their ordeal. She says that the thing that made the difference, the thing that happened in their lives to change everything stemmed from two words. And those two words were, turn around. When she saw the young man walking that day, she looked at her husband was talking about the car and said, turn around. Those two words are what repentance is all about. We turn around. In this last year, we've had lots of discussion about those in our community, those in our culture who have turned to Christ. One of those is Kanye West. Are you familiar with the rapper Kanye West who is now making Christian music? We're going to watch just a, a short clip of Kanye West. Would you consider yourself to be a Christian music artist now? I'm just a Christian everything. Uh-huh. Thank you for saving me, for replenishing me. 
for delivering me. I read the Bible. For real? Yes. Seriously, you sit and read the Bible? Yes. Now that God has called me and I've, I now have given my life to Jesus Christ and I work for God. Now I get to work for God and he about to show out. Kanye West works for God. What are your thoughts on Kanye West? Kanye West, uh, man, he's a good artist. He pumps out some good music. I really honestly don't know too much about him, but running for president. I mean, I probably don't agree with everything he does. I feel like we all got a little Kanye West in us. I have pros and cons. Tell me some cons about Kanye West. I mean, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, and Kanye probably pushes the envelope across, whether it's politics or his music, but um, I agree with like his will for innovation. Does he relate to the average person? Yeah, if you talk to him. He's making the news because of his music. I like his music, but not necessarily lately. He claims to become a Christian. What are your thoughts on that? You know, that's, Con that's Kanye's business. Um, you know, if you believe in God, then they, you know, more power to you. I think he's trying to get, like, followers, trying to make himself seem like better. Perhaps this is a publicity stunt. Publicity stunt? Uh, I don't know that I'd go so much as to call it a stunt, just because I think it gives it kind of a negative connotation. But, uh, yeah, man, absolutely. Look, I mean, why wouldn't you try to get publicity, right? Do you think it's genuine? No. No. It's all, it's all publicity stunt. All publicity stunt. Here's his big word that he's throwing around. It's kind of introducing people to it's a word called repentance. He's saying that he repented. He's changed his ways. What are your thoughts? Have you ever heard that word repentance? Repentance. I, I am familiar with the word. Okay. What, is, what is that word? Repentance? Uh, you know, it's probably looking back on maybe mistakes that you've made. Repentance is one of the most positive words in the Christian vocabulary. It refers to turning from a destructive path and moving instead into God's plan for your life. Any idea what that word repentance means? I mean, I've heard people say repent, repent, and I'm just assuming he's trying to, like, uh, steer people away from things that they shouldn't be doing in the terms of religion. To forsake sin is to leave it without any reserved thought of going back to it again. Repentance. It's the vomit of the soul. MacArthur said that your repentance needs to be as loud as your sin. Yeah, repentance. It's just like repenting his sins, all the things that he, he wants the Lord to forgive him. So what exactly is it? It's a change of mind about your sin and who God is. It's an exchange for an irresistible sin, for an irresistible Christ. It's turning from the sins that you love to a God that you are commanded to love. It's a turning from your sin and it's a turning towards God in faith. That's repentance. Not everybody gonna make it across the gates. It's a very specific, it's very, I did, but since we are here for the interview, let me talk about the idea of sin and repenting. Christ isn't asking us to clean our lives up. He's commanding us to lay our lives down. There's a difference, a world of difference. It's not an invitation, it's a declaration. You must repent. In fact, he says, unless you repent, you will perish. We don't make Jesus Lord, he is Lord. He's commanding you to recognize him for who he really is. He sits on his throne, he is the King of Kings, and he is the Lord of Lords. When people have their own relationship with Christ, a lot of times, I got my own relationship with Jesus, it's because they know they are dealing with sins that they don't want to have to repent for. The difference, once you're delivered, 
everything that you do is in service to Christ and anything that you realize wasn't in service to Christ, you will repent for. A person who truly repents and trusts Christ alone for their salvation is a Christian. Scripture says if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. So, did Kanye West repent? I don't know. But I know that justification comes before sanctification, and I know that he's being discipled by a really great guy with some really good theology. I need to repent more. I'm sure there's things where I'll look at this interview and say, was that self-serving? Or was that mm -hmm. in service to Christ? Spurgeon said there can be no peace between you and Christ while there's still peace between you and your sin. You and your sin must separate or you and your God will never come together. We see those words again as we look at the life of Saul, as we look at the life of Zacchaeus, as we look at the life of Kanye West, and as we look at your life and my life. Those four words, who are you, Lord? Tonight, as we begin a brand new year, it, it may be time for you to rethink those words and, and just see what God's doing in your life and what God's doing in your heart. It might be time for some of you to repent for the very first time and say, I want to know Christ and have that experience that Saul had here of coming to know Christ. It may be that somebody here is, has walked away from God for a long time and it's now time for you to come back. You'll have that opportunity tonight. Roger Robinson was an English clergyman who lived in the 18th century, so long ago. Not only was he a gifted pastor and preacher, but he was also a gifted poet and hymn writer. But after many years in the ministry, he got tired, he got burnt out, his faith began to drift, and he left the ministry and he finished his life up in France, indulging himself in sin. One night in Paris, he got into a little um, carriage and he happened to be sitting next to a socialite from Paris who had just recently been converted to Christ. She was reading some poetry and it, it, it said this and she asked him, do you know these words? Could you, what do you think about these words that I'm reading? And here are the words she was reading. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never failing. Call for hymns of loudest praise. When she looked up at, uh, from her reading and looked again at uh, Robert Robinson, he had tears in his eyes and he said, do I know that poem? He said, I wrote that poem so many years ago and I can't figure out how to get back. And the woman smiled and she said, read your poem again for the way back is written in those words, streams of mercy never ceasing. There was grace for Saul. There was grace for others in God's word. There's grace for those in our culture. And tonight there's grace for you and me. Let's pray. God, we're so blessed tonight to be able to, to have an experience with you that's personal, just like Saul. Lord, we may not be blinded by the light, but we come into an encounter with you that is personal. And we answer those words who are you, Lord? And we don't answer them alone because echoing in our hearts and minds is your echo, I am 
Jesus. Lord, help us to repent tonight. Help us to make a change in our lives, a simple turnaround. The words sound easy, but it's a life-changing, drastic decision. Help us to live for you in the days ahead. In your name we pray. Amen.